Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello and welcome to the 17th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 27th of October 2012 and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, we talk to Professor Andrew Kleiman about the current economic crisis and what Karl Marx would have to make of it all. This week's show is sponsored by the repeat donors David B and my mother, Joan O'B. I'd also like to give a shout out to the monthly subscribers Precious J, Column F, Jeffrey S and Jason L. Thanks very much, everybody, for the kind donations. To keep the show on the road, you too can click on the donate buttons on the podcast website. Today's guest, Professor Andrew Kleiman, is a Marxist and professor of economics at Pace University. He's also the author of several publications on Marxist economics, including the books Reclaiming Marx's Capital and The Failure of Capitalist Production Underlying Causes of the Great Recession. He is a leading proponent of the temporal single system interpretation of Marx's labour theory, which seeks to defend Marx's economic theories against various claims of inconsistency. I'm currently reading Das Capital myself, so it's a real treat to hear what one of the world's foremost Marxists has to say about the current economic situation. Seatbelts, ladies and gentlemen. So, Professor Kleiman, can you tell us about Marx's labour theory of value? Well... Marx's capital relies heavily on on the concept of value, and capital is a critique of political economy, and so his exploration of value depends upon, but is a critical engagement with the views of the classical political economists that came before him, such as Adam Smith, Cardo, John Stuart Mill, and so forth. And probably the principal feature that makes it different from what people generally think of when they hear theory of value is that Marx focuses much more on what he calls the concept of value. In other words, he's doing kind of anthropological investigation. He's saying capitalism has a value character. You know, goods are produced, they have value. The purpose of production is what he calls the self-expansion of value. And he's investigating how that operates, what it means, uh, and so forth. It's not a theory that is principally a hypothesis, wherein he's using the concept of value uh, as an explanatory tool or potential explanatory tool to explain some other phenomenon. I mean, to a large extent, he's trying to explain value itself. Taking it as given, and I think that that's uh, legitimate and indeed required by the kind of investigation that he's doing because value is a concept present within capitalist society. That's principally what makes it not a hypothesis. Perhaps the hypothetical, or in that sense, theoretical uh, aspect which Marx does inherit from the classical political economists is the thesis that the magnitude of a commodity's value is determined by the amount of labor needed to produce it. But even that proposition undergoes a rather profound change in his hands because he fully works out the differences between the value of the commodity as determined by the amount of labor needed to produce it and the actual price uh, at which the commodity will sell, which depends uh, in addition on many other factors. So how does he propose that a capitalist makes a profit? Well, an individual capitalist can make profit in a lot of different ways. At that point, you come to the question, is that capitalist profit 
in addition to the total society's profit, or are they getting their profit at the expense of some other capitalist? We have to really begin with looking at the uh, total society profit, the, the profit at the level of the total economy. For instance, Marx says that firms that engage in, let's say, retail sales, so this would be your Walmarts and you know your big stores like that, and even your, your little stores, they are getting profits, but their profits are not in addition to the, the total society pool of profit. They're actually getting a cut of the profit because the firms that produce are not marketing the goods uh, themselves. If they were marketing their goods themselves, they would get all of the profit, but they have an independent firm do the selling for them, and so that independent firm takes a cut of the profit. So we first have to then look at how the total profit gets determined, and Marx says the sole source of the total profit of society comes from uh, extraction of surplus labor of workers. And that's the surplus labor is the amount of time that they work minus the amount of time that's equivalent to the wages that they're paid. So this is uh, exploitation because during the amount of time they work, they produce an amount of new value which exceeds the value that they receive in the form of wages. And the difference between the new value they produce and the value they receive as wages is profit or as, as he calls a surplus value. So the capitalist makes his money by paying the worker not the value of what he produces, but enough to keep him alive and from stop striking. Yes, as a first approximation, you could add some points that you just made that I didn't make about what determines the wages. And as a first approximation, Marx assumes that workers are paid what it costs to keep them alive and to keep the so-called race of uh, workers alive, the next generation of workers, uh, the co or the so-called cost of reproducing the workers. Uh, his actual theory is developed dialectically in stages throughout capital, so there are a lot of modifications to that later when he talks about wages and he talks about the accumulation of capital or investment and the ups and downs in the economy and fluctuations in wages and so forth. So wage determination is actually a very complex topic and he's, he's aware of the complexity. The book Capital is not principally a book about wage determination, so um, there's a lot more that can be said in addition to what, what's in the book. But it's clear that, you know, if you, if you go around thinking Marx said that all workers are paid what it costs to reproduce them, that's an oversimplification, but it's a helpful first approximation for some purposes, I think. And the, the, the reason Marx employs that is to understand, to understand how profit arises on the assumption that the capitalists don't cheat anybody, that the, the capitalists pay the workers the full value of their labor power or ability to produce. So they, they buy the workers' time you know, at its value. Uh, they buy their other productive inputs at, at their values. That's the assumption he makes. And yet they come out of the process of production with a commodity that's got a greater value than the sum of the values of the, the worker's uh, ability to work and all of the other inputs. So that product embodies a surplus value. So he's trying to show that, that on the basis of buying and selling uh, at value, not paying too little or charging too much, the profit still arises. Can you describe how his theory also explains how products typically get cheaper under a capitalist system through more automation? The way in which Marx talks about this is by means of the concept that, or the, the thesis that the value of a commodity is determined by the amount of labor needed to produce it. And when you've got technical change, automation, mechanization, whatever, the amount of labor needed to produce any commodity falls. And that would be the living labor, the labor of workers right now in production, as well as the labor time equivalent of the price of the equipment uh, and materials and so forth. That would be the, the, the total amount of labor needed to produce the commodity. When you have technical progress, you have an increase in productivity, which means that the same labor produces more stuff, more units of the thing. 
So the same amount of value gets spread uh, across many more things. So the value of each individual unit falls. And as a result of that, the prices of these things tend to fall as well. And that's principally um, a result of competition. You know, if the thing is actually cheaper to produce and you're still trying to sell it at the same price as before, competitor can come in and generally will come in and sell it at a lower price if they've now got the same technology as you. And so you can't uh, continue to, to sell it at that price. So the prices come down along with the values, roughly speaking. In your last book, The Failure of Capitalist Production, The Underlying Causes of the Great Recession, you point to Marx's theory of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall as the root cause of our current crisis. Can you explain this tendency in relation to what we've just discussed? Yes, it's actually pretty simple. Marx's theory of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall is based on technical change, is based on productivity improvements that cheapen commodities. That's what we've been talking about. And the cheapening of commodities reduces their values and tends to reduce their prices. And it's not hard to understand how that tendency of prices then to fall tends to lower profits or or the rate of profit. That's one way of talking about the law. It's not exactly the major way in which Marx talks about it. And there are some complications if I wanted to fully distinguish it from alternative theses. But basically, the technological progress makes commodities cheaper. That tends to pull down their their prices. uh, And that tends to reduce profitability. What is the effect of this tendency to the economy as a whole? Right. This is key. There are a number of things. First of all, productive investment, investment in equipment, factory buildings, shopping malls, office space. That kind of productive investment depends very much on the rate of profit, both because it depends upon the the so-called mass of profit, the amount of profit that you have. If you don't have sufficient profit, you can't invest profit. So the profit matters to the volume of investment that way. Also, expectations of profit in the future are the spur to new investment. Capitalists are not going to invest if they don't expect the investment to be profitable, if they're highly uncertain. And that's a problem nowadays around the world. So the investment of profit is a real link between the movements in the rate of profit on the one hand and what goes on in the rest of the economy uh, on the other. In addition, when the rate of profit falls, you get a low rate of profit, and the low rate of profit, as distinct from the the, the fall in the rate of profit, the movement downward, the low rate of profit itself causes problems because there's generally a whole dispersion of rates of profit. So if the average rate goes down, lots of capitalist rates are going down, so those whose rates of profit are below average are going to go down as well. So the rate of profit can go down below and the average rate of profit can still be sufficient for capitalists to stay in business. But the capitalists at the low end of the spectrum, those who have a below average rate of profit, once the average rate of profit becomes low enough, they're going to be in trouble. You know, they might not be able to survive. So we should expect to see more business failures and more problems caused by fluctuations in the economy like recessions, financial crises and so forth when, you, when you've got a, a low rate of profit. The actual situation I think that we faced is more mediated than that in addition because the fall in the rate of profit, the low rate of profit, the sluggish investment that came about as a consequence led to slow economic growth, slow growth of income. And the slow growth of income led to rising debt burdens of governments, to some extent of businesses, of households. And the basic idea is income growth matters here. And slow income growth matters here because it's a matter of how able you are to pay your debts. So it's not even the dollar amount, let us say, of the debt that matters. It's the debt in relationship to to income. And, And the debt rises in relationship to income when you get slow income growth. But even more than that, in addition to all of these problems, you had government intervention. And in the case I know best is that of the U.S. that tried to manage these problems or perhaps solve these problems over the past four decades. And the, the typical policies that were used were one or another form of covering over 
a debt problem by even more debt or by policies that encourage debt or by guarantees of additional debt. So the government policies prolong these problems. They prevented something like the Great Recession or a huge financial crisis from happening earlier. But the problem built up and built up and became bigger over this period of time until we had a, a whopping financial crisis and a recession that's led to five years of economic malaise that we're not out of yet. So what did the profits go from in the U.S.? Where did they start and where did they end up? I look at various measures of the rate of profit. To keep it simple, I tend to focus on a rate of profit based on a very broad concept of profit, similar to the concept of surplus value that we were talking about before, where it's the whole new value or value added of the companies minus what the employees receive. And measuring that as a percentage of investment in fixed capital, or are known as fixed assets, Coming out of World War II, the rate of profit of U.S. companies was around 40%. It went down by about a third. So it went from 40% to... About 27 or so, yeah. Did it reach this kind of low figure in the 70s initially and rebounded? Well, the, the particular rate of profit that we're talking about here is one that is not adjusted for inflation. And you actually get some uptick in the, the rate of profit during the 70s because of the inflation. That wasn't all that helpful to U.S. corporations because they were also paying more for everything. So the, the additional profitability got eroded by, by additional costs pretty immediately. We have a real sense of huge decline in the rate of profit, the time of the economic crisis of the early to mid-70s, and then the, the global recession of the mid-1970s. I think to a large extent that's overstated, it's exaggerated, and it depends on, on people using measures of profitability. That they, they call these rates of profit really aren't. A tremendous amount of what happened in the early 70s is a consequence just of the first OPEC oil price hike. And that oil price hike increased the current value of the fixed capital, the, the fixed assets, tremendously. And if you look at profit in relationship to the current value of the fixed assets, it then goes down a lot because the fixed assets are, are being valued much higher. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, land values going up. So the land on which the factory building sits, the, the office uh, building sits, that land has a higher value when, when oil prices go up. So a lot of people were attributing the crisis of the 70s to an immediate fall in profitability. And I, I don't think that the rate of profit ever functions that way as the immediate trigger of crisis. It appeared to do so in the early 70s, but that's misplacing the cause. The cause was largely the OPEC oil price hike. That triggered a number of things, including the fall on the rate of profit, including the higher prices, therefore, of the, the fixed capital, which make the rate of profit fall even more if you mismeasure the rate of profit as profit relative to, to what the means of production currently cost. I, I think one has to be very careful about uh, looking at, at the inflation issue and looking at the rate of profit in, in relationship to the inflation issue. You have to look at a number of things and not, first of all, consider the rate of profit as a single index of the health of capitalism or the health of the economy, not think that the rate of profit is the only thing that matters. I think it, it does matter a lot, but you have to look at it in conjunction with uh, other factors like inflation and the effects of inflation. A previous guest on the show was Professor Steve Keen. He's a proponent of Hyman Minsky. Steve Keen points out that he thinks the roots of the crisis was a buildup of private debt in the economy. Am I correct in thinking that you're of the opinion that it is essentially the tendency of the fall of the rate of profit and the inability of capitalists to make good profits in, a, in productive activity that, that actually leads to a rise in speculation as a way to make profits. And thus, it's really a Marxist period that brings on a Minsky moment. Yeah, I'm glad you got to that because I thought you were going to say something I was going to disagree with. 
where we would be contrasting the fall in the rate of profit to the speculative activity, what Minsky calls Ponzi finance, speculative finance. The two things are not opposites. They're not alternatives. They're perfectly compatible. What a Minskyan analysis or an analysis like Keynes really can't do is explain the uh, underlying conditions that lead to the speculative finance and Ponzi scheme kind of finance. So uh, I think you had it exactly right. It's the underlying conditions in the economy, the fall in the rate of profit, the sluggish investment, the slow income growth that then leads to kind of desperate schemes to counteract that. And, and in our day, kind of desperate governmental schemes to try to cover over the problems of debt with even more debt. I, I think Minsky has some highly valuable things to say, and it's very helpful for understanding the outbreak of the financial crisis of 2007-2008. But December of this year, two months from now, will be exactly five years since the Great Recession began in the United States. And if this had just been a financial crisis, a crisis of confidence in the banking sector and such, we would have been out of the woods a long time ago. The economy should have bounced back quite smartly. Uh, a recent study came out that suggested that recoveries after financial crises tend to be stronger than, than average. Uh, Carmen Reinhardt and uh, Kenneth Rogoff uh, argued the opposite. There are two sides of that story, but certainly... What we have right now, five years in with really no end in sight, when we look at the, the global level, we look at the recession in, uh, in Europe, including the UK, we look at the marked slowdown in the growth of the Chinese economy. What we have is not just the financial crises or the effects of a financial crisis. We have continuing problems in the economy and the effects of decades of, of problems that uh, are chickens coming to roost. Do we have evidence yet of a tendency in the fall of the rate of profit in the decades prior to the other major crises like the Great Depression or maybe the Japanese bubble? I, I think that there are sufficient data for Japan. I haven't looked closely at them. I think there are probably sufficient data for Japan to say that, yes, there, there was falling profitability there. At least we can make ties between the, the, the Japanese events and, and the profitability of the U.S. and globally. Going back to the Great Depression, there are really no statistics that I would put any faith in whatsoever. They're, first of all, f very fragmentary. The kind of data analysis that I did in my book would be almost impossible for anyone to have done, you know, I think, even a decade before. The data that we have are much more complete, at least for the United States. And so I was able to do much more in-depth analysis. What I was able to do, because of the much greater depth and detail of the U.S. national account data, is to actually look at why the rate of profit moved the way it did, and, and many other things besides. So it, it wasn't a lot of guesswork in, in many cases to put together a story. I'm, I'm rather skeptical, and, and, and I regard as rather dubious these stories now that take bits of information from here, there, and, and other places and kind of weave them together to tell a plausible story. A lot of things seem plausible until you really scrutinize the data, and you have to have the, the data in order to do so. So a lot of things I think that people think they know based on stories that we've been told about the performance of the economy in the last several decades are really based on myths. And my book is largely uh, an attempt to clarify the actual situation as founded in the data regarding the underlying causes of the recession and to differentiate that from what I call the conventional account on the left. When I hear an old convention song, I still, I still love to hear, love to hear those old convention songs that I heard, that I heard as a child, and the same thing all day long. Like I'm going to walk just a little talking Since you heard, you know, I'm a 
to try and get towards some of these other competing explanations and why you think there are problems with it, I'd like to start with your critique of the other mainstream Marxist underconsumptionist argument, the major theme of your first book, Reclaiming Marx's Capital, a refutation of the myth of inconsistency. Can we talk about what this inconsistency was and how it relates to the tendency of the rate of profit to fall? So there are these various allegations of inconsistency, you know, various different issues, and they, they, they can seem to be rather different issues. But the so-called proofs of inconsistency are all based on a uh, an interpretation or reconstruction or revision of Marx's theory such that valuation is simultaneous, meaning that the price of inputs equals the price of outputs. So, for instance, if you are producing coal and you need to use coal to produce coal, so the coal that you use at the beginning of the period under simultaneous valuation, the price per kilo of coal at the beginning has to be equal to the price per uh, kilo of coal that you produce as a product. So your input coal has to have the same price as your output coal. That's not true in reality, and everybody knows it's not true in reality, but when they try to prove that Marx is inconsistent and such, they impose this restriction or interpret Marx as if he had done that, simultaneous valuation. Uh, and that is behind the issue of the rate of profit to fall because you're revaluing at the current prices the means of production that were invested in in the past. So if you, 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 you buy a machine seven years ago and you're still using it and the price of the machine goes down and it's cheaper now, that doesn't boost your rate of profit. You've already invested it. I mean, what's, what's done is done. Right, you're you're out money. I mean, you don't you don't recover the, the this this money because you paid too much for it. So when when people try to say that that Marx is internally inconsistent, the rate of profit rises. Well, yeah, the rate of profit would rise if you could, you know, get back the money that you paid back then for stuff that's worth less now. But you can't, okay? And and the people who say that the rate of profit rose during the last few decades instead of falling, they're doing the exact same thing. It seems quite strange that when you read Das Kapital, Marx talks about the movement of capital and time all the time, how they could actually try and do a kind of a neoclassical trick where they take time out of everything and say that everything is in a kind of a, a state of equilibrium nearly. Yeah, I mean, uh, you have to ask then whether any of these attempts to prove inconsistency and, and to interpret Marx in that manner, you have to ask whether they're in good faith. You have to ask whether when they say Marx's theory is this and that, they actually mean the theory of the living person from uh, 1818, 1883 named Karl Marx, or whether they mean the thing that we want to reconstruct and call Marx's theory for one reason or another that benefits us. I think, I think, it's, I think it's, it's, it's quite obvious that the textual foundation, the evidence in, in, on behalf of, of, of their interpretations is uh, extremely weak at best. Let's assume that there is a problem with Marx's theory of value and it is inconsistent. What were the implications of this inconsistency for Marx's thought and specifically for the tendency of the rate of profit to fall? Well, the, the, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall goes out the window. Does all Marx's labour theory of value suddenly evaporate? You might be able to get a few insights into the nature of capitalism that remain. But any real theory of how capitalism operates would go by the boards. For instance, Marx's theory of the origin of profit goes by the boards. Marx's theory of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall goes by the boards. I haven't done a claim-by-claim -claim analysis, but if you read Capital, you see that so much of the book is rooted in the concept of value, the theory of value, the theory that value is determined by labor time, uh, the idea that, that uh, profit comes from exploitation, and so forth and so on. Okay, those things get fundamentally damaged. It's very hard to see what could remain. There are, have been claims made from the, the Shroffians and other uh, critics of Marx's value theory, including Marxist critics of Marx's theory, that you can have you know, capital, you can have all of what Marx says without the, the theory of value. And it always reduces to 
some kind of claim that the workers don't get everything they produce. And you can always say, yeah, workers don't get everything they produce. You can, you can do that in purely physical terms on a corn farm. You know, 10 bushels of corn are planted and the workers receive two bushels of corn. So that's 12 bushels. And the output of corn is 15 bushels. So there's three additional bushels that the capitalists get to keep. The problem is, how is that exploitation? That, that's just the capitalists get to keep three additional bushels. And you can't say in physical terms that the, the labor produced, you know, all 15 bushels. It's the labor and the soil and the seed corn and the sun and the water used to fertilize the corn. In physical terms, you have many, many different things that have produced that corn. So the main thrust of a lot of Marxist critique of capitalism at the moment is the underconsumption argument. Can you talk about this and explain what it is? The underconsumptionist account of the latest recession and the continuing malaise is basically that we have a distribution crisis. Increasing maldistribution of income, upward redistribution of income, uh, has supposedly led to less consumption demand on the grounds that richer people don't spend as much of their income on consumer goods and services. You know, they'll buy houses, they'll buy bonds and stocks, they'll buy rare paintings and so forth instead of spending on newly produced consumer goods and services. So allegedly the upward redistribution of income that allegedly took place would have led to a major lack of consumption spending. The lack of consumption spending would have led to a major crisis perhaps long ago, except that the whole problem was papered over by debt. So regular working class people went deeper and deeper into debt, according to this story, to maintain their consumption levels. And in much the same manner that, that, that I say that the debt buildup was a key problem, they, they, they say that the debt buildup was a key problem. The differences are, first, the factual claim that there was this upward redistribution of income in the relevant sense. Second, the notion that a lack of consumption demand by itself would have led to a crisis in the absence of a, of a debt buildup. Those are the, the two big issues, I think. On the first issue, in the United States, there, there has been no reduced ability of regular working people to buy goods and services. Workers' incomes as a share of the, the national income or the net national product has been trendless, you know, since about 1970 to the onbreak of Christ. And again, why people think the opposite, the main reason is they're looking at wages and salaries, for instance, as a share of net national product instead of the total compensation of the workers. Health benefits have increased markedly. Retirement benefits have increased markedly, including what retired workers receive. Uh, in the U.S., we've got the Social Security system, the government pension system, and the Medicare system, the government-sponsored medical system. Workers are re retiring a little bit earlier. They're living a little bit longer. And the pension benefits that they receive in the Social Security system have gone up tremendously. So what we actually have is a major uh, deferral of income toward later years. And if you only count the wages and the salaries, you miss all of that. So I've kind of looked at this issue this way, that way, the other way. And there, there really is no redistribution story in the sense of a diminished ability of workers to buy the output that's produced. So of the amount of profit that the capitalist system in America is producing, workers and capitalists have basically stayed the same in their proportion that they're getting. Yeah. So you, you count the employee share, you know, which is compensation, and the rest of it you can call profit. And though in the corporate sector of the United States, the relative shares of those two things have been really trendless from about 1970 to the onbreak of crisis in 2007. We hear statistics all the time of CEO pay and executive pay going from maybe 20 times average worker in the 60s to 300 times the average worker today. How does this link into those figures? I, I haven't really carefully examined them, but I don't find that all that surprising. I mean, some of these figures, I think, might be for the top 100 CEOs. You've got 
lots and lots and lots of corporations in the United States, and, and 100 is, they're the top ones and they're big, but it's actually very few people who are receiving that. So it's not hard at all to believe that the increased pay of the top CEOs is coming from, at the expense implicitly, of other CEOs, other managers, and, and, and so forth. I have found that there has been a modest increase in the pay of managerial employees. The statistics that we have indicate that there's been a modest increase in their share of the total compensation of employees, but they're not numerous. Uh, I mean, if you take all of the managers together, except for what are called frontline managers, like the people who are called managers at a McDonald's, who really aren't managers. But if you take all of the other managers, they're less than 5% of the workforce. You know, and, and the CEOs are, are, are a negligible amount, and the top CEOs are even a more negligible amount. So even if they get a much bigger, bigger, bigger share, it, it doesn't matter that much in the end because in, in terms of their size of the workforce, it's so small. Let's assume that the underconsumptionist argument is correct, that, that wages aren't be distributing. You've also pointed out that even if this is the case, that the capitalist system can pretty much work kind of independent of consumption of, of the masses. Can you explain that to me? Right. I, I would never want to say independent of the consumption of the masses because that's what they always charge. And they, they always charge that we're thinking of a fantasy of capitalism you know, that's fully automated and, and, and running just with machines and stuff. No, that, that's, that's, that's hugely unrealistic. So instead of saying independent of the consumption of the masses, what I would say is that even if workers' ability to consume the output had fallen, in principle, that change can always be offset by an increase in another component of demand, which is called investment demand. So I think the major reason why the underconsumptionist account seems plausible to people who hear it is people know that demand matters. They know that spending on goods and services matters. They know that capitalists not only have to produce, they have to be able to sell their stuff. So demand is important. And so you hear consumption. And to the average person, consumption, demand, it's all the same thing. But really, you know, when you look at the issue in an accounting sense, there are two kinds of demand for goods and services. Personal consumption demand, that's like your demand, my demand, and investment demand. That's demand for, you know, computers, machinery, factory construction, shopping mall construction, office building construction, software purchases for production, housing construction, uh, and, and all of that. So a rise in investment demand can always, in principle, offset a fall in personal consumption demand. And what are the statistics like for that over, say, the last 100 years in the U.S.? I was absolutely astounded when I found this out because we had always kind of heard that there's been balanced growth, which is to say that production of investment goods has risen at the same pace as production of consumption goods, that investment demand has risen at the same pace as consumption demand, and that would seem to go along with the underconsumptionist account. There's a theory coming from Paul A. Baran and Paul M. Sweezy, which says that they try to argue that investment demand cannot ultimately grow faster than consumption demand. And the, the stylized fact that investment demand had not grown faster, you know, was embedded in my consciousness. But it turns out in the United States to be a myth, a huge myth. And really, it's very easy to go to the, the website, just as I did, of the Bureau of Economic Analysis and, and the numbers. If we uh, strip out the investment demand in residential construction, which is housing for people, which is not really of the same piece as factory construction and equipment purchases, then in real terms, adjusted for inflation from 1933 through 2008, business investment demand rose almost five times as fast as real personal consumption demand, and about four times as fast as the inflation-adjusted gross domestic product. I mean, that is really investment demand outstripping consumption demand over a very long period of time, 
And I, I didn't talk about it really in, in my book, but I looked at various sub-periods, and I tried to say, was this tendency for investment demand to grow faster than consumption demand limited to particular periods of time? And no. I mean, the, it's not always that it grows five times as rapidly, but it, over any reasonable window of, of, of time, investment demand is growing more rapidly than post-consumption demand. So the system is basically growing for its own growth's sake in some kind of way. Yeah, right. I mean, in, in Capital, Marx talked about production for production's sake. Uh, I'm not sure who was the first person to note that the fast growth of uh, investment, the faster growth of means of production as against means of consumption is production for production's sake in a, in a rather different sense. I know that uh, Lenin mentioned this in one of his earlier writings. Uh, he may have been the first to point out connection between the, the, the notion of production for production's sake instead of production for consumption that Marx talked about. If we look then to, say, the Occupy movement, their chance of 99% versus the 1%, they see the problem as being a need for redistribution of wealth from the rich to the poor. But if you're right, what you're saying is that while it may help the poor, it, it wouldn't help the system. Right. I mean, I don't know how much of the Occupy movement looked to redistribution as a possible solution to the economic crisis or look to upward redistribution as a cause of the economic crisis. There were people like that, but I think more generally, the Occupy movement was expressing distaste at the imbalances in, in, in U.S. society and, and globally as well. There is a, a great degree of income inequality and a much even, uh, an even much greater degree of inequality of wealth, and that's the case whether either of them has increased in the last uh, decades. But yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, we can prevent foreclosures if we can get debt canceled. I think some of the debt's just going to be written off anyway by, by lenders who won't be able to collect it. But if, if we can maintain and increase living standards and, and all of that stuff, working people are going to do better. But it's not going to make the, the capitalist system healthier. It, it's not facing a problem of inadequate demand that anybody's actually been able to show due to lack of consumption demand. I mean, the data analysis that comes from people who make this argument is almost or even totally non-existent. Uh, you have to do more than show that consumption demand would have fallen if it had not been for increasing debt. You have to show that total demand would have fallen if it had not been for increasing personal debt. Uh, I've never seen anything that purports to come close to doing that. And moreover, if you're, if you're redistributing income away from profits, you're not making capitalism work better. Profit is the fuel on which capitalism runs. It's, it's, a, it's a system of production for profit. So if you cut into the, the capitalist profits, they're not going to say, oh, good, let's keep on investing at uh, the same rate as before, even though we've got less profit. You know, so we'll, we'll pay fewer dividends to uh, our shareholders. They're, they're not, they're not going to do that. If profits go down, productive investment will go down. So that means that, first of all, you're cutting into demand in, in that sense, because productive investment is demand. And they're not going to hire workers if they're investing less. Basically, if they cut back on investment in equipment and buildings, they're going to be cutting back on hiring. So that's going to also depress workers' incomes to some extent, and that will depress consumption demand as well as investment demand you're not going to solve the problems of capitalism, which are rooted in low profitability by further cutting into profitability. You're going to make the problems worse. Okay. So I do favor, you know, keeping up people's jobs and income, fighting against austerity, but just understand that these are concessions is all I say. They're things that we win against the system, so to speak. They're not solutions to the systemic problems by any means. So how does capitalism normally get out of this low-profit funk? Well, the last time it did was World War II and before that the Great Depression. And the fundamental mechanism, and this is widely understood, it's not a particularly Marxist notion, 
you know, Austrian economists and other, other economists, basically anybody who's got their head screwed on straight realizes this, is what's sometimes called the destruction of capital value is really the main mechanism to get out of this kind of thing over the long haul. And it means bankruptcies, bank failures, writing off of uncollectible debt, falling prices, idle factories, idle means of production of other kinds, and all of this. And what eventually happens is new owners can acquire companies from the owners of failed companies very cheaply. And now they don't have to uh, assume the previous owner's debts. So they can buy up the companies cheaply. They're not obligated to pay the same debt. So their rate of profit goes up. The previous owners were, were, were in deep trouble, but the new owners can finally, once the, the companies are on sale for cheap, the new owner's potential rate of profit is extremely high, even without any new profit opportunities, just because the amount that they're investing in the companies is so small. And that, that, that rise in the potential rate of profit is a tremendous spur to investment, to producing more, constructing new offices, new factories, installing new equipment, hiring additional workers, and, and all of that. Are those who are about to receive their helmets present? We are. We are. We are. Are the witnesses present? We are. We are. We are. Do you love the doozer days working all day long? Will you follow doozer ways building with a song? Do you know the doozer lore? Love it as your own? Do you dream of doozer chores sleeping in your home? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, we really, really do. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, we really do. Can you dig and fill a trench? Yes, I really could. Can you monkey with a wrench? Yes, I really could. Can you dream of doozer tower? Yes, I really can. Can you call on doozer power? Yes, we really can. I was reading recently a book by Hyman Minsky, Stabilising an Unstable Economy. He was Keynesian, but he also read a work of Marx and took him seriously. One sentence really struck in my mind, and I'd like to read it to you. It goes, in effect, big government rigs the economic game so that profits are sustained. By sustaining profits, government deficits can prevent the burden of business debt from increasing during a recession. Furthermore, if the deficit is large enough, the burden of business debt may decrease during recessions. Is this the essence of the kind of great Keynesian insight which attempts to prevent the falling rate of profit from taking its casualties? I think that that's correct. I, I don't know if that is a big issue. It depends partly, I think, on how you're, you're, you're accounting for debt. The more traditional way of talking about this would not look at the debt side, but would look at the deficit spending as a way of keeping up demand and boosting profitability in, in that sense. I suppose what I'm trying to get at is that, is it possible for governments to just basically let their deficit balloon and use that as a way to kind of keep the system from going into a Great Depression kind of crisis. Yeah, they can do that, and, and, and they, they're doing that to the extent that they can still borrow at rates that are not exorbitant, and that depends on a particular country. The United States government has borrowed an additional six-plus trillion dollars since Lehman Brothers collapsed. Its total debt has gone up by two-thirds. It's borrowed more than $20,000 per person in four years in one month. I mean, this is phenomenal. We have never seen such stimulative policies in, in history. Uh, this is not what happened in the Great uh, Depression. Between the middle of 1929 and the middle of 1931 in the United States, the debt of the U.S. government actually fell relative to gross domestic product. If the government had pursued similar policies, like not letting its debt balloon this time around, uh, it's very, very likely we would have seen something like the Great Depression. But the United States government is in a very privileged position internationally um, by being able to borrow cheaply uh, right now, despite all of this. First of all, countries like Greece and Spain and Italy are not in that position. So I don't think that even the United States will be able to 
maintain uh, a policy of prosperity through borrowed money for very long. At some point, interest rates are going to go up and the United States government is going to be taking a big hit and facing a major problem because so much of the borrowing that is it has engaged in recently has been very short-term borrowing. And when you borrow very short-term, you have to roll over that debt. If you have to borrow a lot now at much higher rates, you face a big problem. And I think the, the United States government is going to face that problem. So what you've had are a lot of borrowers who are willing to lend for a very short term, a year or less, to the United States government. But that just means we have faith in the ability of the United States government and the willingness of the United States government to pay us back in the next year. What happens when you're talking 10 years down the line, 30 years down the line? It's completely different. So if interest rates go up, I think that, that even the United States government is going to be facing a big problem. And in any case, it will not be able to keep the economy afloat by, by means of borrowed money much longer. I mean, it hasn't pulled the economy out of a rather deep place, even with six plus trillion in additional debt. We're not in a, in a deep depression, but they're, they're certainly not going to be able to bring about prosperity this way. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today, Professor Kleiman. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Tom. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and the cathedral singing the old conventional song. You also heard the doozers from Jim Hansen's Fraggle Rock, indoctrinating the young about how to do a hard day's work, and you are now listening to Van Morrison singing Glad Tidings. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode from Alpha to Omega. So believe no lie, and try your eyes, but realize, bright surprise, la 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 la, 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 la 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 la. Well, that's a good place for me to end.